Welcome to another podcast from Generations Church. We trust you will be encouraged today. Um, the title of today's message is Crazy, Dipped in a Dirty River. And so some of you who are Bible scholars are already going to know we're going to go to the book of 2 Kings and talk about Elisha and uh, a man named Naaman. Um, but as we get started today, what this message is, is really about us understanding that everything God does in Scripture whether you like it or not, is to tell us something. And certainly there are things in the Old Testament and even in the New that we recognize really exist today more in principle than they do in literal practice. And if we can grasp those principle realities in God's Word, like taking a day of rest, if we can grab the principle reality of of understanding what it means to actually place God first in our lives, um, we, we can move into relationship with him in the way that he intended and longs for. And uh, it, it really is one of the most amazing things. And so uh, as, we, as we get started today, I just, I want you to, I, I'm going to like start up a whole new phrase today. Maybe someone else has used it before, I don't know. But I think that too many of us are trying to work out our salvation and let me just explain that slowly. While Jesus stands at the door and knocks, we try to work out our salvation while Jesus stands at the door and knocks. We have a misunderstanding about salvation. We have, we, we have a misreading of what God's heart is when he talks about salvation. And we're going to resolve some of that through the, end of the, through the end of the message today. But where we're left in all of this is, is sometimes trying to put the pieces of a puzzle together going, God, why do you do such crazy things? Why do, you, why do you make such grand overstatements so that we can understand what your heart is for us? And um, we're going to pick up the story in the lifetime of the prophet Elisha. And he is living in the reign of Jehoram, the son of Ahab, who's king over Israel at the time. Remember Ahab and Jezebel, if you went to Sunday school, a whole lot of bad stuff was happening in that time. Um, Elisha's mentor, Elijah, had faced off with the prophets of Baal. And and there there was a time of restoration coming to Israel, even though they were captive to other nations. Um, So there's a real tense relationship between Israel and Syria, or Aram as it was called in those days, because God's people have been not not walking with him properly for generations. And we talk about this all the time, sin breaks relationship, uh, but what we mean by that specifically is sin always separates us from God. And because Israel had been walking in sin as a nation, um, they had separated themselves from God, and they fell into the consequences of of that. So in 2 Kings chapter 5, if you want to read along on your, on your device or if you want to look up at the big screen, it's fine. 2 Kings 5, 1 to 14, we're going to break it up. But now Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man with his master and highly respected because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. Well, that's weird. First of all, why is God giving uh, victory to the nation that's not Israel? Again, Because they were walking in open rebellion to God. Um, And it's not that God has to visit that on them. That's just the natural consequence of walking outside of God's provision and call and destiny for our lives. It's like driving on the wrong side of the highway. You might get away with it for a time. But eventually there will be a consequence to driving on the wrong side of the road. And that's what we see here. The man was also a valiant warrior... 
but he was a leper. Not a leopard, son, kids, not a leopard, a leper, which meant he had a skin disease that was believed at the time to be crazy contagious, and basically it caused him to be an outcast from most of society. He was a mighty warrior, a valiant warrior, but he was also a leper. Now, the Arameans had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel. That's right. They took her as a slave. And she waited on Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who is from the land of Israel. The king of Aram said, Go now, I will send a letter to the king of Israel. He departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand shekels of gold and ten changes of clothes. Verse 6. He brought the letter of the king of Israel, brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, And now, as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman my servant to you that you may cure him of his leprosy. Anybody ever gotten a text or an email like that from your boss? <laughs> Probably not. not. Not quite that way. But who has been given an impossible problem to solve by letter, email, or text? I have. It happens all the time. It's like people would phone up or text up, Pastor Trav, my kid flushed a cat halfway down our toilet. What do I do? That's never actually happened. I see a lot of questions over here on this side. That's never actually happened. We get crazy phone calls sometimes. And so do you. I know that, uh, that Tyson has had some crazy phone calls as a plumber. I know that uh, Dr. Bolton gets some crazy phone calls as a surgeon. And so this king, Jehoram, over Israel, not a great king, not a, not a good king, not a godly king, gets this, this email from his boss that says, I want you to talk to the people to get this guy cured of leprosy. So when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of leprosy? But consider now and see how he is seeking a quarrel against me. So King Jehoram, all he thought from this was that he was being set up to fail so that he could have his head chopped off. He thought that the king of the Arameans was simply trying to ruin his life and ruin his day by sending him this crazy request. That's why he tore his clothes. That is, in, in ancient Hebrew tradition, tearing your clothes is like the most dramatic emoji you can use. It's, it's like all of the sad faces and terrified faces in one. Just, ah, rip the clothes. I would do it, but my shirt would come open way too easily today. And we don't want that to happen. So it happens that Elisha, who is the prophet in Israel at this time, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, a.k.a. Facebooked everybody, texted everybody the absolute most horrible, horrifying emoji that he could. So that he sent word to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Can I just pause for a moment and say that when we encounter a problem in life, we often ask the wrong person 
for the solution. Now, you can't hold it against Naaman or the king of Aram because they have just heard kind of secondhand that God heals people of leprosy. From a little girl, no less. This is like the stuff of fable. I heard there's hope. And what I want to point out to you is that wherever we go as people who believe in Jesus, who follow Jesus, you will encounter people who are desperate for the hope that you actually carry yourself. And that's what Naaman was looking for. Naaman needed hope because he was a leper. And you know, you can be a valiant warrior for a while while you're a leper, but eventually when your fingers fall off, you can't hold a sword. Now, I never thought of this before, but being a leper could be advantageous at first in battle because leprosy kills the nerves in your extremities, so you can't feel pain in them. So maybe it was serving him well, but, but what he needed was hope. He needed healing in his life. But like the king, like Naaman, we often go to the wrong place to the wrong person with the expectation that something good should happen for us. Some of you this morning might be sitting here and are even angry or frustrated with God about some issue in your life. And I want you just to listen to this story as we continue through it today. Because God, as crazy as his plans might be, always will have what's best for you in his heart. Now Naaman came with his horses and his chariots. And stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored to you, and you will be clean. But Naaman was furious. Well, you can understand why. Naaman is under the king who rules the land. He is the best fighter in the army. He's the best general. He's the best at everything he does, even though he's a leper. He's a big deal. He has celebrity status among the people who know and fear him. And he shows up in his limousine, well, ancient version of a limousine, with chariots and caravan and people and gifts and all his money, his billfold, is throwing bills everywhere he goes. And he's furious. And he goes away and said, behold, I thought... He would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Now, have you ever asked God to do something in your life, but you expected him to do it in a very specific and a very certain way? We could all probably put up our hand for this. You know, like, God, I want to be rich, so let me win the lottery in Jesus' name, amen. It doesn't happen, and we say, well, I don't know what God will ever do for me. I just want to point out, with regard to the lottery, if God is just, can he truly turn the random odds of lottery into your favor and still be just? That's what my dad always used to say. We ask God to do things according to how we believe they should be done, and much like people I know today, they want to be healed and they expect the pastor or they expect someone to come and mount out and meet them and lay hands on them or wave their hands around in a certain way, a certain spot, do a Benny hand, flick the jacket, poof, pushing people over, knocking people over, whatever it looks like in your mind. We have this, we have this delusion, if I can call it that. We have this imagination 
that God is going to meet us in a certain way in a certain place. But I want you to understand, if you read the whole of Scripture, God always surprises people in the way he moves and shows up. You know, all through Scripture, I can't think of a single place where God did what was predictable according to men. Even when God did something, and totally like Moses, you're going to do this and this and this and this. And this is what Pharaoh's going to do. And then you're going to do, it's if then, then, if this, then this kind of a thing. And even in all of that, where God explained it ahead of time, everyone is still surprised that God does the things he does the way he does them. So Naaman has this modern Christian, if I can call it that, mindset. I'm going to go. Elisha's going to come out. It's going to be an altar call. And I'm going to stand there. He's going to wave his hand around. He's going to do something maybe like his mentor Elijah did. And fire's going to fall. And he's going to, you know, wave his hand around. And poof, I'll be healed. you got to admire his faith. He's at least got that going for him. But then we get to the weird part. He's mad because the guy didn't come out to meet him. But then he says, are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away and went in rage. He's so mad he can't even talk. Again, maybe you're sitting here this morning in church, and you're so upset with God right now that you're having a hard time talking to him. Just so frustrated, so angry, so impatient. His servants came near and spoke to him. They said, Master, Naaman, my father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? And they're asking a rhetorical question, just so you know. How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. You and I have that tendency to want the man of God or the spirit of God or Jesus himself to show up and wave his hand around and do some complicated, fantastic, and sensational thing to change our life. But I think in reading the scriptures, for most of my life now, I arrive at this conclusion. God makes it like stupid simple for us. And this is what his servants understood. Well, if he would have asked you to go on a quest, if he would have asked you to go and slay the dragon and then take the dragon's heart and throw it in the ocean, and I mean, whatever fantastic, sensational story you can imagine, they're going, you would have done it. Well, yes, I would have because I am Naaman. I'm a mighty warrior. And they're going, Master, Father, they're being very respectful to him. If he asks you to do something really simple, shouldn't you just do what's really simple? Apparently that got Naaman's attention. So he went and did exactly as Elisha had said. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. In no way did God do something sensational. Unless you think sensational is dipping yourself seven times in a dirty river. 
In no way did God come out and do something fantastic. The man of God spoke to do something simple. And I think we're maybe missing out on a lot of what God has for us. Maybe we're even stumbling over that first step of putting our faith in Jesus because it's just not complicated enough for our mindset. But can I be like the servants of Naaman to you today and say, if God asked you to do some crazy, amazing thing to inherit salvation, you would do that. But why wouldn't you receive salvation when he asked you to do something really simple? My hope is for each one of us today that we'll say, you know what, you're right. If it is simple, why don't I just try it? Why don't I at least take that one step? See, the problem with Naaman is the same problem that you and I have today. We are willing to go to God. We are willing to do what God wants. We are willing to sacrifice whatever God puts on our heart to sacrifice as long as we believe God is going with us. But the minute most human beings realize it is not God going with us, rather us going with God, we're not quite as interested in the simple thing. Well, I want to follow Jesus if it's going to be a crazy adventure. I want to follow Jesus if, if it's going to be amazing. I want to come to this church if it's going to be amazing every Sunday. We're willing to go with God as long as it, quite frankly, suits our desire. But in my experience, when it comes to God's will in my life, my desire is aligned with his, not his with mine. And your desire is aligned with his, not his desire aligned with yours. And can I just submit to you this morning, my friends, that if we could understand this little truth, it might not be as hard as you thought it was. It might not be as difficult as you thought it was to endure or to receive or to hope again. Because God is into not sensational, but simple things. Jesus heals blind people by spitting in the dirt and wiping mud on their eyes. He didn't bring lightning bolts and fire to do it. He didn't wave his hand around. Jesus shows up too many days after Lazarus died and simply says, Lazarus, come out. Well, that's less than sensational. You see, what God asks of us is very rarely going to be sensational. But here's what's amazing. When we become obedient to what the Spirit of God says to us, sensational things begin to happen. It wasn't complicated for Jesus to heal the blind man's eyes. It wasn't complicated for Jesus to raise someone from the dead. It wasn't complicated. The complication comes because what is impossible with man is possible with God. And so can you explain to me why on earth we continually come back to God expecting him to do something wild? See, Naaman came with all his authority, with all his wealth, all his changes of clothes, all his servants, the truest representation of who he believed he was. I am Naaman, the greatest warrior in all of Aram. I'm the best. 
I'm a baller, yo. He was angered when nobody gave him his respect. Prophet wouldn't even come out to meet him, but sent a servant instead. Do you know that all humanity comes to their heavenly father, their creator, and says, God, save us. We need you. And you know what God's response was? He sent a servant. He said, I don't think so. Jesus was God. Yeah, but Jesus same said, the Son of Man came to serve, not to be served. God's response to our plight was to send a servant. God's response to Naaman's plight was to send a servant. I believe that this is connected to the reality where Jesus speaks. How can you, how can you love a God that you can't see when you can't even love the brother you do see? Naaman needed help to come before God. He came in all his armor and all his clothes with all his fans, all these people carrying all his stuff. And in the end, he has to strip down and dip in the river. He needed help to get out of his armor. He needed help to take off all of his kingly robes, his, his robes of royalty, all of the things that made him who he was in his own eyes. And in fairness, the eyes of men. But who is Naaman to God? Well, we could say that Naaman was the most important person in the whole world to God. And we wouldn't be wrong. Just like I'm his favorite. I'm the one he loves, and so are you. For all of us who are self-appointed heroes and captains and valiant warriors and sensational people, we got to take off our armor. we got to ask someone to help us get out of our robes, out of our perspective of who we are, and simply be who he made us. And do the simple thing. It's just to dip seven times in a dirty river. Or maybe the simple thing for you is to shut off Netflix. Or maybe the simple thing for you is to start praying with your wife. Or maybe the simple thing for you is to phone a few friends and say, man, I need accountability in my life. No, oh, I want to come to church where Pastor Trav will wave a magic wand. Where Carlisle will prophesy over me. I remember Carlisle's message from a few weeks ago. You got to clean up your own mess. You should podcast it. Jesus has a very similar conversation to what we're talking about today in Matthew 10, 17 through 27, where he meets someone the Bible calls the rich young ruler. And I think like Naaman, the rich young ruler probably showed up fancy dress, 
He probably showed up with his B.C. era limousine. And he probably approached Jesus like he was the most important man on the road. And he asked Jesus the question, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, you need to keep all the commandments. He says, hey, I've done it, which was probably not true. But you see, we don't always think about what's true for us when we are self-appointing righteousness. When we are working on salvation instead of salvation. Jesus says, okay, if that's the case, if you've kept all the commandments since you were a child, I want you to give everything you have to the poor and follow me. And the Bible records the man turned away, sadly, because he had great wealth. He could not do the simple thing. And I think it's because he was looking for something absolutely sensational. God, that's crazy. Why would I give everything I have away? You gave it to me. I think those of you who study what it is to live the blessed life know that God gave it to you specifically so you would give it away. But that's crazy. Yeah, it is crazy. Because God does a lot of crazy things. But they're not as sensational as we like to think. What did Jesus really ask? He asked that rich young ruler to take off his fancy clothes. To remove his self I think the statement of humanity is summed up best in Revelations chapter 3, verse 17. And it says, Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. You know what? I think that any time. We live in the delusion of I have need of nothing. I think we're missing out on what Jesus did altogether. And I'm not saying that we're not saved. I'm just saying that we're missing out on what he actually did for us. I have need of nothing. That will never be true for me. And my friend, it will never be true for you. Jesus, the Bible says, sustains all things by the power of his word. I love the line from The Matrix when Neo meets Morpheus, those of you who are old enough to remember this movie. And they're in the simulator when Neo is first realizing that everything's an alternate reality that's programmed by giant computers. And Morpheus has Neo in this combat simulator, and Neo, the character, is breathing heavily. And Morpheus says, do you think that's air you're breathing? And I would just say to you, if we feel that we have need of nothing, do you think that's your air you're breathing? Or is it his? What do you have need of? You can go without food for 40 days or more. 
You can go without shelter in the summertime or near the equator for most of your life. You can go without water for three, four days. But you who have need of nothing, let me just ask, how long can you hold your breath? (laughs) I can never say I have need of nothing. I need him who sustains all things by the power of his word because it's his breath that fills my lungs. You see, we're all hopelessly lost. Our self-appointment and our self-assessment falls drastically short of God's perfect standard for us. And while we might think it's unfair that God has placed a perfect standard for us, he can do no less because he himself is perfection. And there's hope in simple acts of obedience because of that. We, in our imperfect way of thinking, want things to be much more difficult than they have to be when Jesus simply says, come and follow me. Simple acts of obedience. In verse 18 of of Revelation chapter 3, it goes on to say, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and that I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. We often are happy to go God's way as long as we believe he's going ours. We like to feel rich. We like to feel clothed. But we pretend to be rich and we pretend to be clothed. Why? Because we're ashamed of our nakedness. And it's crazy that God invites us to trade the fraud that we are for the purity of what he can give us. Can you catch that? It said, I advise you to buy from me gold. What do you buy gold but refined by fire from God with? Come on, somebody tell me. What do you buy gold from God with? Well, I buy it with my life. See, I exchange a sinful nature for a perfect nature. I change a carnal mind for a mind that is aligned with the Holy Spirit. And one day I will get to trade this mortal body for a body that is immortal. And that's exciting to me. Salvation and I want to close with this. I'll invite the worship team to come. Salvation is a very different opportunity for you and I than this invented word called salvation. And too much of the world believes in salvation. Too much of the world believes that it's what I do that saves me, when in reality, when in fact, it's what Jesus did alone that saves me. That's what salvation is. And the Greek word for salvation means a lot more than we give it credit for. We kind of throw salvation around. Popular culture throws the word salvation around in in rather loose ways sometimes. But what, what salvation means in the Greek is deliverance. It means preservation. It means safety. 
This is, this is a very specific definition. It means deliverance from the molestation of enemies. Did you know that in the Greek, the word salvation is intended in an ethical sense? That there is literally morality attached to it. Morality comes in salvation. Salvation is the present possession of anyone who chooses to put their faith in Jesus. Salvation can be grasped. It can be held. It can, be, it can become your possession in this life. And in the future, salvation is the sum of benefits and blessings that Christians are redeemed from. All earthly ills. One day we're going to see Jesus. And in the future tense of salvation, when we enter the eternal kingdom of God, man, we're going to see him as he really is. We're going to know him. That's salvation. Salvation is knowing Jesus, not guessing Jesus. Salvation is an authentic relationship with the one who created us. And I know some of you might be sitting here this morning going, well, if that's the case, I want to feel it. I just need you to back up for a moment. Feelings are sensational, literally. Right? Feelings are literally sensation. But salvation is not sensational. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and salvation becomes our possession. And then it begins to change us. Salvation means absolutely nothing for one who won't receive it. But for the one who does, it allows us to be adopted into the kingdom of heaven and the family of God. Salvation means to deliver, to save, to rescue, to bring to safety, physically or morally, to deliver, to bring health, to bring wholeness, to save indeed. We got to separate ourselves from everything the world says God should be. You got to separate yourself from everything that your carnal nature says God needs to be for you. Because when we can learn to separate our presumption of God so that we can make room for his reality in our lives, it's in that simple act that we begin to see him as he is. It's a stumbling block that Jesus puts in front of us. The Bible actually teaches that many wise people will stumble and fall because of salvation. It's hard for us to receive in a carnal mindset. But if we can just step back from that 
and allow it to become simple. What does Jesus actually ask of you? What does he actually ask of me? Just leave your past behind and follow me right now. That's it. Leave your past behind and follow me right now. That's crazy. But it's actually not that hard. It's actually not that difficult. Wherever you're at this morning as you sit in this place, I just want to pray for you right now. Salvation is also a seed. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and all you have is a heart with nothing growing in it. I want you to know that the Holy Spirit is here to guide us into all truth, to help us understand our Heavenly Father. And right now, a seed of salvation can be dropped into your heart. And it can begin to change everything you know about God. So Father, as we talk about what you've done for us today, how simple things are so often the way you do the miracle. By your spirit, Lord, I pray that each one of us, regardless of where we're at with you in this moment, would receive once again the possession of salvation. And Lord, not only that, but that you would come and you would water it right now in our souls. God, that you would give us a clear mind, washed with water and washed with your word. Lord, I pray that today would be a day of salvation, that now it would spring forth. Thank you for joining us in another podcast from Generations Church. If you enjoyed listening today, please subscribe to our podcast channel to get a new one each week. For additional information or to partner with us, please check out our website at www.genchurch.ca.